Getting in the Loop, Episode 7, How Can Policy Help Create a More Circular Economy, with Leonidas Milios. Hi, I'm Katie Wellen, and join me each week as I talk with experts around the globe about circular economy. You'll find out what's being done to make it a reality, and if it can really solve the problems it promises. It's time for Getting in the Loop. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that it's as sunny in your town as it is right now when I'm recording this. Okay, so I have a special treat for you guys. Basically, what I did was I took all of the presentations that I've ever made about circular economy and I put it into 20 pages of slides for you. So if you ever give presentations about circular economy or will be needing to give them in the future, or if you're just curious to learn a little bit more about the basics and the concepts behind circular economy, head over to slidedeck.gettinginloopodcast.com and I hope this saves you some time, whether you're making your own presentations or just looking for some key resources for information on circular economy. Now on to today's episode. Today on the show, we have Leonidas Milios, who was a researcher at the International Institute for Industrial Environmental Economics at Lund University in Sweden, where he focuses on the management and policy aspects of resources, especially within the circular economy paradigm. Prior to joining Lund University, Leon worked as a consultant undertaking various tasks for the European Commission and the European Environment Agency. Leon and I are colleagues at Lund, and we both work on a project called Mistra Ries, which is resource-efficient and effective solutions based on circular economy thinking. In this episode, we focus on policies for repair and reuse, meaning how can you extend the lifetimes of products and make them last longer through smart incentives from policymakers. While the focus is mainly on the EU, I still think that a lot of the listeners who are outside the EU can learn a lot from this episode. So enough from me, now on to today's show. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Leon. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. I'm really glad to be here, actually, and uh, really looking forward to talk about all the interesting questions that you have to ask. Yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into it. To start us off, can you explain a little bit about CE and policies? Okay, yeah, that's a good way to start because um, there's been a, like, a really big hype recently about the circular economy and what is the circular economy and how different actors can approach and uh, actually uh, implement circular economic activities in their operations. So it's, it's pretty interesting, I think, to see what actually is a circular economy, what does it mean, and all that. I mean, it's not really a very complicated concept, but there has been some confusion uh, recently. And um, I could uh, give like a a brief um, account of what do I take from the current debate on the issue. Well, we have to start thinking about the classical economic activity, how the economy works, right? I mean, we have um, first the extraction of raw materials that um, are um, processed in order to make um, manufactured goods. And then the products that are manufactured are distributed across the market to retailers and put on the market for the consumers to buy. And at the end of um, 
of use, those products ultimately ended up as waste. Well, what the circular economy actually means is that at the end of life of a product, it's not about being a waste, but rather uh, being uh, something that can be used again and it's embedded uh, material and energy can be reintroduced back to the economy and be used again and again. Of course, there's like many different types, many different ways um, a product or some material embedding the product can become um, feedstock for another new product and return to, to the economy. Um, from, uh, for example, just reusing the product again as it is, or by other activities in the case the product has um, is damaged for example when uh, we can it can be repaired it can be refurbished it can be remanufactured which is uh, kind of like a more industrial way of bringing a product back to its functional use and ultimately a product that cannot be repaired or remanufactured it can be recycled for of, of course and um, its material can be um, recovered and um, some important aspects of the circular economy is like, what is the aim of it? It's like to minimize waste, to reduce waste as much as possible towards the zero waste. Although an actual zero waste situation is not uh, like physically possible because of, you know, constraints in the materials that ultimately they disintegrate and cannot be used anymore. Um, and ideally, the whole process, the whole, all the operation of the economy would be powered by some sort of, some kind of renewable energy and not like fossil energy. So these are kind of like the basics of what the circular economy is. Um, I hope it was clear a little bit, mm -hmm. but um, I, can make it, I can make it much more easier because um, in policy circles, uh, people need to have like a clear uh, definition and they want to know what they're talking about so um, things um, become much more easier if we look at for example at the um, uh, European circular economy action plan which uh, just has recently been published by the European Commission and then we can we can find like a very simple uh, definition what kind of uh, resonates with like um, uh, the de debates in the policy circles so what do we find there we find that a circular economy uh, refers to the, an economy where the products, where the value of products, materials and resources is maintained in the economy for as long as possible and the generation of waste is minimized. So practically this is kind of like a very simplified but very to, to the point uh, definition that actually uh, policy actors and uh, any uh, can really understand and act upon it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's about maintaining, maintaining the value over time. And one way to do that then is, of course, what you said, repair and remanufacturing. And mm -hmm. I hear a lot in this, you know, the discussion about so how to enable more repair and re more, more remanufacturing. So again, maintaining the value over time. One of the things that's often brought up in these discussions is is policies and sometimes i think of policies like magical unicorns they're often brought up in the discussion but i don't think we 
always know or even understand what they they mean. So could you just give us a brief understanding of what a policy even is? Yeah, that's a that's a good uh, that's a good point because uh, uh, it's always that we listen about you know we need policy for this policy for that and for the circular economy policies can change everything, but. Um, Starting from like a basic idea with the policies, we can say in a general level that the policies, policies are like a set of principles or like a course of action that uh, is adopted by an organizational entity. And that could be either like a government or even like business, a civil society. So it's, it's, it's a broader idea of what a policy is. But if we look around us, actually pra policy is practically everywhere. There are like numerous rules that control our everyday lives from what we eat, what we buy on the market, where, how we live, how do we move in the city and the environment around us. And the list goes on and on. So why that, so this is why policy is so important. Mm -hmm. And uh, in our case, particularly one type of policy, the public policy. And um, what public policy is, it can generally be defined as a system of laws and regulations and like a general course of actions towards a social outcome, which is enacted by public authorities, either at a governmental uh, or like state, state level, let's say, or at the local more administrative level. It could be some municipal rules, for example. And of course, to achieve this, public authorities need to have like more strategic re, uh, vision and to allocate appropriate funding for the implementation of this type of um, rules and policies and yeah, principles, let's say. So thinking back to where we started when we talked, we were talking about repair and reuse. How is repair and reuse currently supported by policies in the EU? Yeah, um, I mean, we can um, we can say that there is like a very wide uh, policy uh, a, a framework at the European level that uh, covers um, and the whole life cycle of, of, a, of a product from the time that its materials, constituent materials are extracted until the end of life at the waste management phase. Um, however, what do we have observed is that there's like a really high concentration of regulatory instruments at the end of life of products. Well, um, at the production um, stage or the use phase um, of a product, there's quite uh, like fewer policy instruments there to, to intervene. So until now, at least, there was a, the policy framework was a little unbalanced in Europe, kind of waiting for a product to first to, be, to, to reach its end of life and then try to regulate its its. Um, the best way to recover um, its material and energy. However, this kind of we are in we're in a transition period now that a lot of things are happening, and maybe we can discuss a little bit later about that. But um, what we can see, uh, especially um, when it comes to the reuse of products, the durability of products, let's say, and how they can be repaired. There's like one very, very um, promising policy instrument um, that has been that has not been used at its full potential until now, but this has started changing. And I'm talking about 
the Eco Design Directive, which has, which has the potential to set specific rules and specific uh, technical requirements on products that are um, introduced in the European market on how they can be more repairable or to regulate their intended um, uh, use life. Um, and um, until now, there has been a few only uh, rules only on a few product groups um, implemented so far. And I could say, for example, we have um, some rules on the vacuum cleaners and some rules on lighting. And uh, if I take the example of the vacuum cleaners, for example, let's see what we see in the regulation, in the, in the implementing regulation on eco design of vacuum cleaners. Um, there are like two, uh, I see, um, two elements addressed. One is about the operational lifetime of the vacuum cleaner that sh should be uh, greater or equal to 500 hours of operation. And then uh, we all know that the, the most of the vacuum cleaner has this like hose that goes, you know, helps you go everywhere and you know, take all the dust. So the hose, if any, of course, it shall be durable and be able to um, and be usable uh, without any strain, any damage after 40,000 oscillations under strain. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's pretty specific rules we have here. And uh, this kind of, we can see here where how far the, the, the eco design uh, regulation can, can go. But until now, it has been an almost entirely used to set energy efficiency standards. So that's why we, we see that there is a huge potential to use this piece of legislation for um, also material um, efficiency requirements and uh, extending the, the life of products. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So if I'm hearing you correctly, until recently, a lot of attention has been focused on like the end of life. So waste management. So making sure, you know, bottles or uh, electronic products are collected for recycling at, or proper disposal at end of life. And now we have some focus on the upper part of sort of like the life cycle. So up like the design of products, mm -hmm. yes. but most of most of that has been then in terms of energy efficiency, mm -hmm. and only now have they begun to set requirements in terms of the the lifetime and durability and material efficiency. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and um, also here I can mention uh, what I what I said before about this. Um, European Union Circular Economy Action Plan, which is actually the strategic document that directs the um, the way the new policies should be introduced around the circular economy and material resource efficiency. And uh, they do uh, actually um, make a special mention on the potential of uh, the Eco-Design Directive and how it can be used to develop requirements for uh, example the repairability or upgradability of products extending the product life and uh, and so on and um, also we can see also some specific uh, mention for for some like more consumption based instruments in a sense um, 
on the public on the public side of consumption, uh, it, it is mentioned that the instrument of uh, green public procurement uh, can emphasize more on the circular economy aspect and have like uh, revised criteria when um, um, some uh, purchasing decisions are need to be taken. And also, and on the private side of things, the action plan promotes and actually prior prioritizes the use of uh, uh, eco labels and information about uh, increased durability of products. And um, mm. so we see that in the action plan there is a, a clear a clear path where we need to go on this on this type of instruments. However, still. I think we, we are on the way. Things are starting happening now as we speak, actually. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify, so who is who is responsible for f following the the policies and that are dictated in the Eco Design Directive? Mm -hmm. um, yes, um, I mean this uh, for uh, its product category. There is um, a specific implementing regulation. Um, that is um, um, that actually covers not covers it's 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 mandatory for all products that are entering the European market. Um, so um, a manufacturer either it's uh, from a European country or from uh, somewhere else uh, elsewhere like either Asia, America, Africa. It doesn't it doesn't distinguish. But every manufacturer that actually um, intends to um, introduce their products in the European market, they, they need to follow these rules. Otherwise, they will not get, uh, um, how to say, permission, let's say, to be at, uh, in the market here. Okay, yeah, and we have listeners from all over the all over the world. So I think it's, it's, it's not just, rel it's not just uh, pertinent to people who are listening in the EU, but to those who are you know, working with companies that mm -hmm. are pl placing products on the market in the EU and dealing dealing with the EU. Exactly. I had a question about uh, reuse and repair in terms of, and I know we've talked in terms of the, the EU. So is there any individual company, uh, sorry, country paving the way? Because I know the EU is sort of the overarching governing body. And then there is other individual countries that do make their own uh, rules and, and legislation as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and this is a, this is a very true, I have to say, because um, um, there is a, a lot of uh, things happening at the EU level. However, uh, because it's a, like let's say supranational uh, entity, there's there needs to be a lot of you know discussion and agreements and consensus throughout like uh, the processes however there are a few european countries that are actually in the for forefront of uh, policy uh, specifically for uh, durability and repairability and one of them is actually france which has like, a really uh, forward-looking uh, policy framework um, and I, c I could mention here uh, um, a, a law they have this um, act lock Act on consumption and prevention of plant product obsolescence uh, back in 2014, actually, even before the European Action Plan for Circular Economy comes to existence, um, where 
this um, this law has many provisions there, and one very important one is about uh, actually making it illegal for products <laughs> to uh, end their life prematurely. And then you would ask, okay, so how are they going to um, monitor that? Uh, however, the encouraging news are that um, French authorities have been uh, uh, kind of studying the different type of products and uh, uh, different, um, how to say, reports of suspected plant obsolescence. And they have reached out to the companies and they're trying to find out uh, and to compare their products and with their intended life and the actual life. So um, there are many things happening. Um, some anecdotal uh, information is that they have been in deep discussion with Apple about their products, but I don't know how this is going. Uh, any French um, listener, maybe they can give us some insight. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and among, among other things is about uh, the obligation of re retailers to inform the customers about the, the time horizon that spare parts will be, will be available for a product uh, so that uh, when they, the um, customers buy a product, they know already from the start that, okay, this product will have spare parts available for X number of years. Um, and then they can make their informed decision, let's say. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, there's also provisions about extending the guarantee of products uh, up to two years and more. Um, and speaking about forward-looking countries, another one is uh, Sweden, which is a kind of uh, a little celebrated within uh, Europe and globally for being a very forward uh, and uh, pioneer in environmental policy. And um, while we saw in the in the case of France that the, there was more a more direct approach, a little more top-down administrative uh, regulation, in uh, in Sweden, there here we are more um, in favor of economic incentives and economic instruments and how uh, change the behavior of individuals and uh, economic actors by uh, introducing economic incentives. So in Sweden, there, there's been um, a tax reduction, a VAT tax reduction on repairs. And uh, specifically from the higher level of VAT, which is currently at the 25% in Sweden, to the mid-level at 12% only for repairs on bicycles, shoes, leather goods, clothes, household linens. And... Um, Currently, there is also consideration about ex expanding this this uh, reduction in other product groups as well. However, there, there needs to be some uh, preparation and some uh, impact assessments on that before uh, we continue forward. Um, and uh, also, talking about incentives, there's also this opportunity of um, when um, people do some renovations at their home on their home and they have to uh, change something or repair a household appliance, a fridge, for example, then they have the, the opportunity to declare this together with their tax declaration at the end of the year and get uh, some tax deduction there, which is also a very good um, uh, economic incentive as well. 
Oh, really? So I can declare that. <laughs> yeah, if you had some uh, recent renovations at home, don't forget. Yeah, yeah. Don't forget yeah, to declare yeah. that. Yeah. Ah, there is so much that we can. I think there's so much that just we as consumers don't even know as well. So that's maybe something in in the future that needs to be needs to be you know just discussed and communicated. And and I know that some of our colleagues like Jessica mm -hmm. has been looking at. What does this actually mean for the consumer? You know, what are, what is like the right to repair? What what kind of uh, benefits and possibilities do do we have? So okay. um, I hope that, that that will be become more transparent in the coming coming years. Yes, and uh, also as we see, there's like so many different ways to to approach uh, the issue of repair, you know, with a policy different policy instruments. And um, there's also a possibility of you know learning between the different countries and how uh, these the different instruments can can be adapted and adopted in the different uh, um, countries and finally maybe at the European level as well. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to what I was going to ask you next, Theon, which was about the different types of policy revisions that you see being discussed at the EU level to encourage repair and reuse? Yeah. Um, I think I have mentioned this uh, many times already that there's like a lot of uh, things happening now. And uh, it's true that um, um, there has been some proposals for revising uh, rules in the Eco Design Directive and uh, practically making, bringing, let's say, the right to repair uh, closer to to the people, closer to reality. So we can see that there is some a few proposals from um, for specific um, uh, product categories. For example, TV screens, fridges, um, servers, um, washing machines, and dishwashers um, on requirements for repair, and that's very important. And what do we mean about requirements for repair? So the, the, the proposals include provisions for non-destructive disassembly, which means that the manufacturers must ensure that appliances can be easily disassembled and key components can be replaced with uh, the readily available tools, not something specific or sophisticated. Also, um, the regulation um, makes uh, mention about the availability of spare parts that the manufacturers actually are required to provide spare parts when key components fail. However, most of the spare parts will be available only to the professional repairer. So maybe you and I as a, as a you know, average user, we cannot go and get these spare parts from the manufacturer. However, we can always turn to a professional repairer. Um, also, something very important is about the access to repair information and manual. So manufacturers actually will be required to make repair manuals available. Then again, to the professional repairs, which kind of makes it a little, uh, puts an extra step in the way of repairing because people will not be able to do it at home, but maybe people would not do it at home anyway. So why not go to a professional repair? And finally, something about the delivery time of spare parts that the manufacturers are required to deliver spare parts within 
15 working days for all projects concerned. So if we put all these things together, we see that there's like a really actually enabling framework for repair that makes it um, much, much more likely and easier to repair our products than it is now, for example. However, still people cannot do it themselves, but um, sometimes maybe it's better to go to the professionals because when the, the product is too complicated for some, some electronic product like a laptop or a mobile phone, uh, I guess uh, professional help is, is required anyway. Yeah, I've been wanting to bring iFixit. Kyle, I think the Kyle, he's the founder of iFixit. So he's really into uh, the right to repair and being able to repair products yourself. And I've been wanting to bring him and talk to him on the podcast um, for a while. But I also do see the, the, the side that you mentioned here that sometimes products are too technically complicated or people don't have the, the knowledge and the expertise to do it. So I think there is some sort of happy medium that you, you can find. Mm -hmm. And I also find very interesting that uh, for specific product groups, for example, uh, computer servers, there are like some additional requirements that are very, very relevant. Uh, for example, requiring for manufacturers to provide firmware updates for a number of years um, because it has been observed that this type of uh, software updates have been a problem actually for extending product life. So now uh, with the proposal of the regulation to provide firmware updates, uh, I think it's for eight years at least, um, makes it um, much, much, much uh, likely that uh, a server can extend its life. And also uh, data deletion tools, because this is also important uh, concerning the privacy uh, of uh, the information uh, included in the servers. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can imagine. That's important because these, these uh, specific uh, terms uh, have been many times mentioned as uh, critical barriers for product life extension of server and computer equipment in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe to follow up on that, could you just give us some examples from, from your research and also from what you're seeing more generally in terms of how we can pr help promote an increased amount of reuse and also sort of accelerate this transition to a circular economy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, this is a very good question. And I have a very recent example uh, to, to tell you. And uh, it's also very much connected to what we talked already about the IT equipment. Um, uh, we had uh, some um, contact with the Swedish, uh, with a few Swedish municipalities. Um, and try to to discover how and uh, what are the requirements when they uh, want to purchase IT equipment and how they can uh, uh, adapt the requirements so they can uh, prioritize um, reuse the equipment, second life equipment. So it we found that that it was very important that um, when um, a new procurement process starts. Um, it's important to make a, a proper market investigation and in, initiate a dialogue with suppliers to see actually what is available there. Because uh, there, there has been instances where like, uh, although there is quite a, a sufficient supply of uh, reused equipment in the market, um, public authorities, they don't even know their existence. So that was like a, f a first, uh, first place to start. 
see what options are available. So this will allow then the design of a proper procurement criteria that may include criteria related to these products. For example, a, a guarantee, service, and other issues that can prolong the lifespan. Um, another very interesting issue that came up is um, also for the public authorities to, to consider actually the use of the of the product itself. Why do what type of use do I, I need to do for this product? Um, and we can imagine, for example, that um, a, a new high-tech uh, equipment is not really necessary to run in a public library to search articles or, for example, in an elementary secondary school to run some simple educational programs. So in those cases, it would make absolutely much better sense to actually procure second-hand equipment because uh, the requirements are not, uh, the use requirements are lower and the cost is considerably lower compared to new equipment. So we see the multiple benefits that are coming in the picture and, make it, and making it kind of like the obvious choice. However, this has not even occurred to many of the municipalities anywhere <laughs> that so, so many different options can have like a lead to the big highest benefits, economic and uh, sustainability benefits in general. Um, well, and uh, as a final thing, uh, it's about uh, not only purchasing new, like secondhand equipment, but how about their own computers, their old computers that they haven't used in the municipalities? What do they do with them? I mean, there was different options. Um, if they were like at the, uh, in good enough condition, they could be sold somewhere like secondhand, or they could be redirected straight for uh, recycling. So what municipalities can do is actually to try to contact uh, specific, you know, remanufacturers and uh, refurbishers of IT so they can take their equipment there and not some other like middleman or broker that the, the final destination of the equipment is not certain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So really thinking what, what is out there and, and what do I actually need and can the two sort of be compatible? Uh, yeah, that's what I'm hearing you say. And then also thinking, what what am I going to do with the previous, the previous equipment? Yes. And maybe maybe this is now getting a little bit too technical here, but we've talked about that there can be economic benefits to this. What is the environmental benefits to to this? Maybe even the case of you know using laptops. And extending the lifetime of laptops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it 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 really has uh, quite many uh, environmental benefits in the, in the sense of uh, saving a, a lot of uh, um, energy and resources of um, manufacturing new uh, laptops, and especially when we talk about this uh, electronic equipment, complicated equipment. There's also a lot of the included inside a lot of uh, precious and critical metals and minerals which are not readily available and uh, they're also a big challenge to recycle as well because usually it's, it's difficult to extract uh, some rare um, minerals from the laptop um, so it, it, it really can um, can have like a, a big environmental benefit when we reuse uh, 
um, a computer. Um, there has been some studies about that, uh, taking life cycle assessment perspective. Um, I think uh, maybe we, you, you can share a link later with our uh, listeners. Yes, definitely. I'll put some uh, in the in the show notes on our website. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we talked so far about the the current policy landscape and uh, what is being discussed, and uh, it's um, closing closer and closer to implementation at the European and national level. And um, if I could combine that with uh, my actual case study research here at the um, university, um, I could um, um, start making uh, a more holistic, let's say. Uh, approach to what actually policy uh, instruments are required for um, increasing product life and and repairability within a circular economy context. So what would a policy mix then uh, look like uh, for repair and reuse? Um, I have put together five points that I consider to be quite uh, critical, uh, especially for reuse and repair of products. First of all, uh, it's very important to have uh, specific eco-design rules, actually that mandate manufacturers to make their products more durable, easier to to disassembly and repair. Um, Secondly, uh, a mandate for manufacturers actually to provide spare parts uh, and repair information uh, for an extended period of time and not uh, for just a couple of years after the, the product is launched and then go find spare parts. So this is also very important. Um, thirdly, I would uh, definitely propose uh, the Swedish approach here to use uh, some type of economic instrument, for example, a reduced uh, tax rate for repair services and why not for repair, repair no, uh, second-hand parts as well. Um, fourthly, it's very important actually to uh, involve uh, product users and consumers in general by providing them information about potential uh, environmental impacts and savings of, of using secondhand products um, and repairing their products. So that's also very important. Um, and finally, what I would like to stress is um, some. Uh, let's say local bottom-up uh, uh, support for um, uh, repair activities. For example, do-it-yourself and repair cafes that not only engage uh, uh, the, the people uh, in the local community, but it can also uh, improve and uh, uh, reduce the, the environmental impacts of uh, individual consumption. So, yeah, I mean, if I, okay, maybe I need to recap very, very fast to these five points. Eco design rules for durability, availability of spare parts and repair uh, information, reduced uh, uh, tax for repair services and secondhand products, information to consumers about environmental uh, impacts and environmental benefits of reusing and finally support um, local activities like repair cafes and do-it-yourself repair activities brilliant that's a very clear way to to wrap it up thanks so much leon thank you very much
Yeah. Are we done? Well, I have one more question for you. And and that's the question that I ask all of the interview guests. Um, the, it's about the In The Loop game. And yes. I think you actually came up with this idea to ask this question for for all of the interview guests. We were just brainstorming over lunch one day. So I have to thank you yeah. for this. And I was very amazed uh, because uh, when we played the game, there was all these different uh, uh, events and e extremely uh, clever ones. Some of them I haven't thought about, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Leon. So yeah, so you know what's coming because you helped create this uh, this question. Mm -hmm. But essentially, if you could create an event uh, for the game, what would you focus your event on? Yes, and um, I think my proposal here would be uh, straight to the point of uh, our discussion today. Um, I would propose uh, a, an EU-wide full repair mandate, and uh, stressing EU-wide because, as we mentioned before, it doesn't matter if you're a manufacturer in the EU or outside of the EU, the rules are the same if you want to compete in the market. So a full repair mandate for the game would include an extended, extended product warranty for, uh, for some years, a guaranteed provision of spare parts, and of course, the full disclosure of repairing guidance, repair information. So um, that would be an interesting event to see and how the players in the game would react and what would they decide to do and how this will change the events in the game. That would be interesting to see. Yeah. Well, I love your event, Leon. It reflects reality, and those are my favorite kinds of events in, in the game. Thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us sort of this crash course and what policies are and how can we help extend product lifetimes uh, in the circular economy using policies. I'm going to link the things that we discussed, you know, so these different papers and reports uh, in the show notes on our website at gettingintheloopodcast.com. So listeners can go check out, check that out uh, and learn more about what we discussed in the, in the episode today. But yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Thank you very much again for the invitation. It was really nice talking to you and I hope our listeners will uh, also uh, enjoy this episode and uh, be a little more inspired and uh, demand their right to repair. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For show notes and links, go to our website at gettingintheloopodcast.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our mailing list to have new episodes delivered to your inbox every Monday. See you next week.